Our text for this morning is the 10th chapter of Hebrews, but in preparation for reading that portion of the New Testament, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is the centerpiece around which everything in Hebrews 10 is arranged. The author of Hebrews very often quotes portions of the Psalms. We've seen that in our study of this book. He quotes Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 45. He quotes Psalm 110, Psalm 95, and the second Psalm. This is simply one of the Psalms in which he finds the same emphasis that he's making in the book. The point you'll recall, of the whole book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything we could ever imagine. He's better than silver or gold or riches untold. He's better than any other person that we could love or devote ourselves to. He's better than any set of circumstances that we could have in this life. He is superior to anything we could imagine. And he wants to make that point from a psalm to let us know that this truth is embedded in the Old Testament as well. Now, uh, the title to the psalm attributes it to David. We're told that it's written for the director of music, that is, the choir director, the director of the uh, choirs that that led the worship in the tabernacle. Uh, David was responsible for setting up these gills of singers which led the entire congregation in in worship. This was one of the psalms written for them, and it was written by David. It's attributed to David in the title. These titles go way back. They are not a part of the inspired text, but normally they're very accurate. Uh, Historically, traditionally, David is the author of this psalm. The psalm is described here as simply a psalm. Uh, the Hebrew word for psalm is, or psalms, is tehillim. It's based on our, uh, the root uh, hallelujah is based on the same idea. Uh, it has to do with praise. Every one of these psalms, except one, are songs of praise and thanksgiving and worship. Psalm 88 is sort of the black sheep of the Psalter. It's the only one of the psalms in which you'd find no praise at all. But in the others, there is a strong note of praise and worship and devotion to God. Now, um, there are three ways to look at these psalms. Historically, culturally, the psalm first applies to the author, in this case, David. Secondly, the psalms apply to us. We can put these uh, psalms into our own mouth. And thirdly, they apply to our Lord Jesus. You probably noticed in our studies in Hebrews that very often the writer will quote a psalm and he will simply put that psalm in Jesus' mouth. He said, and that's what he does in Hebrews 10 with reference to this uh, this psalm, Psalm 40. In fact, I think every one of the psalms can be put in Jesus' mouth. They are all royal psalms. They're all messianic psalms in that sense. And I think we gain some some insight into what was going on inside of our Lord what he felt as he approached his mission and his ministry in, in, in the cross. They give us an insight that we could not, uh, could not get from, from the Gospels. I remember the first time that fact dawned on me, I, I, it occurred to me that one of the Psalms, Psalm 2, is quoted in the New Testament 
first with reference to David and then with reference to Christ and then with reference to us in Revelation, the book of Revelation. And uh, it just occurred to me that this is the way we can look at these psalms. Now, I don't have time this morning to apply every aspect of the psalm to all three, you know, in terms of three of the three possibilities. You'll have to do that as if you want to read it and apply it where the author of Hebrews does. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Literally, David said, waiting, I waited. The idea is I waited and waited and waited and waited for the Lord. So much of life is simply that. It's waiting for the Lord to respond. The deliverance that we have often is not swift, and sometimes it's not painless. Sometimes we have to struggle, and we hurt while we wait. You know, I, I think David had a very, very hard life. I've commented before that I think he was an illegitimate child. He was treated as a pariah, an outsider most of, most of, her, most of his life. I think he was a little hyperactive kid that uh, was always uh, slinging rocks where he shouldn't be, breaking his mother's vases and, and whatnot, and, and getting into all kinds of trouble. He seemed to have a bad environment to grow up in. He, his heredity was not good. His circumstances were never good. And he seemed to have, as C.S. Lewis would say, a hard machine to drive. He was a very passionate man. Uh, as you read through his story in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Samuel, he had a hard time with his temper. He was driven by, by a, a, what we would call today a very bad temper, uh, prone to telling big fibs. He was an adulterer. Uh, he was a murderer at the end of his, of his life. He just had a very, very hard time of it. And yet he is described in the Old Testament as a man after God's own heart because he counted on God to change him. Very early in his life, he began to ask God to change the inclination of his life, the tendencies of, of his life, and God began to work to remake, remake this, this man. And sometimes the process takes time. That's why he says, I waited and waited and waited on the Lord, and literally he leaned way down and heard my cry. My children used to tug on my pants leg and say, hey, Dad, would you come down here? I want to say something, and I'd have to get way down to hear them. And I think that's the, the picture that we have here before us, a father who's very attentive and who's willing to get down on our level and listen to us. And David said, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. I always think of Irma Bombeck's uh, statement when I read that psalm. If life is a bowl of cherries, how come we're always in the pits? Uh, David is speaking symbolically here of some circumstances, some circumstance in his life that put him in the pits. In those days, they threw criminals into a cistern, and usually there was a lot of mud in the, in the bottom, and it was the worst possible situation you couldn't climb out. I don't think here David is talking about a literal pit. He's rather talking about his emotions, the way he was feeling at the time. 
And he wants those who read this psalm and who sing it and gathered in worship with the uh, temple singers to know that God is the God of the bog. And when we're bogged down and we're in a hole and we can't get ourselves out, that he hears us. Now, he doesn't always answer. You know, I think of some of you women who, for whom Mother's Day is a terribly painful experience because you cannot have children for one reason or another. And uh, you've asked and you've asked for children and for, for some reason God has not responded to that request. And you feel that, that you're, you're bogged down and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, the Lord doesn't promise he's going to make everything okay and give us everything we, we ever ask, as we're going to see in a moment. He has, he has much more in store for us than this simple ease and affluence in life. He, he has something far better than that. But we have to wait for it. Now, David said, he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. The old song, I suppose, was, ah, help, or whatever, but... The new song is a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see. They'll see his deliverance and fear and put their trust in the Lord, which is really the bottom line. What God is trying to teach all of us and teach others is to trust him. Even when we can't see, even through the darkness, which, by the way, is where that black sheep psalm ends. The author finds himself in the darkness. That's all he has. But uh, even in the darkness, God knows and he sees and, and he cares. Now put, put those words in our Lord's mouth. Uh, you know, most of us never think about what our Lord went through during his life here. He's described in Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How did he get that, uh, that awareness of our humanity and and our weakness and our limitations and the struggles we go through, well, it's all because of the incarnation. We have a high priest who's made out of the same stuff we're made out of. See. He, he's gone through these same struggles. He waited and waited and waited on the Father. Remember the passage that we read earlier in Hebrews? Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And when he cried out with strong tears, the author says, he was heard. For his, for his piety, for his godliness. Well, what was he crying out? Lord, spare me from the cross, if possible. But, you see, the Father didn't spare him from the cross. He had to endure the cross, looking through the cross to the glory on the other side. What the Father heard was his cry for help, and the Father bestowed on him all the resources to go through the, these tough times. And that's what God does for us. Now, uh, there's a nice uh, beatitude here, verses 4. Blessed or happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to lies. You know, the biggest lie in the world is that we have everything it takes to live life apart from God. That's the lie that was presented to, uh, to the man and woman in the garden, and it's still with us today. We can be God without God. We can have everything we want. We can be whatever we want. We can, we can make it through life without God. That's the big lie. On the other hand, happy is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord. You, you know, have, you ever, have you ever thought how 
how crazy we are to think that we have the resources to make it through life. Pascal described us as a thinking reed. It's a good description of us. We can be so easily crushed. You know, this uh, heart of ours, that we, we, just, we take it for granted. Uh, it beats uh, 70 times or so a second, 4,000 times an hour, 90,000 times a day, 32 million times a year, something like 2 billion times in a lifetime. And we have absolutely no control over it. It can stop in a moment, and a minute later we're dead. And yet somehow we live thinking that we have what it takes to make it through life. We're like the uh, man that Jesus described in one of his parables who had a bumper crop and delighted in his wealth and he decided he was going to build barns and houses and and he's going to sit back, going to kick back and enjoy life and and God says, you foolish man, tonight your life is required of you and he had a massive heart attack and died and that was it. We have no control over our lives, basically. The chances that, that any of us will survive this, that all of us will survive this year are very, very slim. Some of us here this morning won't be here next year. And yet we live life as though we're immortal. On the other hand, the psalmist says, Blessed are those, happy are those who trust in the Lord. See, all of life is designed to teach us to be trusting, resting, believing people. Counting, relying upon the resources of God. That's what we were made for. It may surprise you to know that Jesus himself had to live life on the same basis. In fact, he said to his disciples, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he that eats me shall live because of me. In other words, the same relationship I have to the Father, you are to have to me. What relationship did he have to the Father? One of dependence and trust. As he put it, I don't do anything on my own. I just do what I see the Father doing. My words are not my words, they're the Father's words. You see, our Lord did not have an edge on us. He was a dependent person, just as we are. He was fully human. Oh, he was fully divine, and that's mystery. But he was fully human. He never used his deity, not even in the working of his miracles. He always counted on the Father. Incidentally, this uh, word for man is uh, the word, it's actually a generic word for men and women, but it refers to men and women in their strength. So even the strongest of us needs to trust. As uh, the praise hymn sang for us earlier, not trying, but trusting, not in running, but resting, not in wondering, but in praying. It's in that confidence in God that we find strength in the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 5, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you yourself have done. You see, it all depends upon what God is doing. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, there would be too many to declare. So our past is full of wonder. Our future is full of full of promise. Uh, remember the song, a little Gaither tune that Carolyn quoted for us a couple of weeks ago. I am a promise. I am a possibility. I'm a great big bundle of potentiality. But you see, it's not that we in ourselves have some spark of deity that's going to make us outstanding. It's that we have God himself indwelling us who's able to do 
exceeding abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. That's where our power comes from. You see, the Christian life is not a matter of the Lord being over there and our asking Him for help. It's that our Lord is within. And we rely upon Him for everything. Now, with this in David's past, as he looks back on what the Lord has done for him, the the miracles he's worked on his behalf, and the promises for the future, he wants to express his gratitude. And I think we do too. What is it that God wants? Does he want me to try harder to keep the law? Does he want me to go to church every Sunday? Does he want me to give a tenth or or half of my income? Does he want me to... What does he want? What does he want? What's he asking for? Well, David tells us, and this is the passage that's quoted in Hebrews with reference to our Lord. Verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Actually, you do not, you have not, you never will desire. Isn't that interesting, given the fact that uh, there was an involved system of worship that uh, had to do with sacrifice and offerings, and yet God never ultimately desired sacrifice of animals. He had some greater goal in mind. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Now, some people think that what the psalmist is referring to to here was the practice in those days of boring the ear of a slave who wanted to remain a slave. Uh, Hebrew slaves served for six years, and then they were set free. But if a slave did not want to go free, if he wanted to continue to serve his master, they uh, and I wince when I think of it, he would stand against the door and they would pierce his ear with an awl and and I suppose put an earring in the ear, and that would be a, a symbol of servitude, willing servitude. And some have thought that that's the practice that's alluded to here. Uh, that's very close to the idea, but I think he has something else in mind. Actually, the word that's used for pierced here is not the word that's used in Exodus 21 for the piercing of the ear of the slave. It's a word that literally means to excavate. It's used of digging out pits. It's a pick-and-shovel operation. This is what David is talking about. You know why God gave you ears? So you could hear his word. And sometimes because our ears get clogged with debris, God has to dig them out. He has to excavate them so we will listen. And I think the point that David is making here, and it's surely the point that's made in Hebrews is that the, the, only, the only thing God asks of us is a body that's made available to him. So he's using ear here by metonymy in place of the whole body. You know why God gave you a body? Do you know why he gave you eyes? So you could see things as God sees them. Do you know why he gave you a mouth? So you could speak his words after him. Do you know why he gave you feet? You know what Isaiah says, beautiful or how beautiful are the feet of those that... Preach the the gospel of peace. Your whole body was given to you so you could make your body available to him. See, it doesn't make any difference what your body looks like. As I've said before, tall, dark, and handsome, short, shot, and shapeless. God didn't care. Just wants your body. 
He's for it. He loves it. And we look at our bodies and we say, well, you know, this needs to be different. This need, you know, I need to tone up here, tune this part up. And God says, ah, forget it. Forget it. I don't care what your body looks like. I just want a body that's available. That's all. And the premier body that was available to God was the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that is what the incarnation is all about. He came in a human body so he could offer up that body to God. And uh, that's what this passage means. Sacrifice and offering you don't desire. My ears you've pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. Here I am. I'm available. I have come. It is written with reference to me in the scroll to do your will. Oh, my God is my desire. Your laws is within my heart. Here, David. David says, the whole Old Testament teaches me that God wants me to make my body available to him to do his will. That's what he means by the roll, the scroll that's written about me. What was written with reference to him? God wants men and women to make their bodies available so they can do his will. And that's exactly what our Lord did. He came to do the will of the Father. To make his body available to God, whatever that meant. And what it meant for our Lord was to go to the cross because it was the will of the Father to bruise him. You see, that's what was going on in the garden when our Lord prayed, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, he offered up his body. That's what the, when we celebrate the Lord's table, that's what we're doing when we, when we eat, take the bread we remember what Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Dorothy Sayers said, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrow and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever the game he's playing with his creation, he has kept the rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile because he was doing the will of the Father. And this psalm even says that he bore our sins. Look at verse 12. See, this is where people stumble. They read through these psalms and they say, but the psalmist talks about his sins. Yes, he does. But Jesus could well talk about his sins when he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Because what happened on that day, Good Friday, all our sins were placed on him. And that wasn't some legal transaction that occurred. That was personal. He felt the guilt of all of those sins. And as I understand Peter, Peter tells us that he actually went to hell. He experienced hell and separation from God because of that sin. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the, the psalm, which he quotes, Psalm 22, answers that question. Because God cannot look upon sin. 
So our Lord actually became sin. So he could say in verse 11, Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. He's disheartened when he became sin. Isaiah, in predicting the coming of the servant, said, We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. When they saw Christ on the cross, they thought God was judging him for blasphemy. And the very next verse says, No, no. He was sacrificed for our sin. He was chastised for our peace. In other words, to to give us peace with God. And you understand what the psalm is saying? God had been so good to the Son that he offered up his body. He said, Lo, I, here I am, I come. In the, in the volume of the, of the roll, in all of the book, it's written to me to do your will. He made himself available to the Father, and by that will he atoned for sin. Now, will you turn with me to Hebrews 10? Our time is gone. And I really don't have to do. I really don't have time to do much more than just read through the passage and make a couple of comments. Hebrews ten verse one: The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And we've seen that fact over and over again that, that all the Old Testament just foreshadows the coming of of Christ. The sanctuary was a picture of the greater sanctuary that we have. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We can worship while we put dishes in the dishwasher and while we diaper children and we edge the lawn and, and we stand at our workbench or we work at our uh, computer or whatever you do. You can worship anywhere. Our sanctuary is the whole universe. We have a better high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was just a shadow of the high priest that, that we have who doesn't die, who never forgets us, who's always alert to what's going on in our lives and who is always available, always ready to come to our aid, never put off with us, never angry and resentful because of our sin, never surprised at our sin because he knows the stuff of which we're made. We have a better sacrifice. It happened only once. It doesn't have to be repeated every year. We don't have to go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. It happened once for all time. We're, we're forgiven totally, completely, utterly, ultimately, finally. It is finished. There's no good work that we have to do in order to be accepted by God. We have a better covenant. You know, we, we don't uh, go back to the Old Testament and try to crank out the law. The law is written on our hearts. And there's this incredible ongoing forgiveness that supports us as we seek to do God's, God's will. It's all, all the Old Testament shadows. The New Testament gives us the real thing. Some of you may have seen that segment, a real cute segment in World's Funniest uh, Video um, uh, home video shows a little boy trying to get away from his shadow, and uh, he's stuck with this thing. He lifts up one foot and then the other, and tries to run away from it. You know, and he tries to climb up a ladder to get away from it. Some people are living like that. They they're stuck with the shadows. They're still thinking that going to church and keeping the rules and and getting involved in the ritual and saying all the right things and and tithing, and all the other things that were required in the law are what make us acceptable to God. And when we fail, then he's, he frowns and he's mad at us. They don't understand. 
And we understand that the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on forgiving us, cleansing us from all sin. The author says, for this reason, that is because the old covenant is just a shadow. It isn't, it isn't the real thing. It can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. They would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sins are, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what did God do? And he took on a body. And he came to earth to take the place of the bulls and, and the goats and the lambs that were sacrificed symbolically. Verse 5, therefore, when Christ, when the Messiah came into the world, he said, notice, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now, he's quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And the Greek translation saw what the author was getting at, and he generalized, rather than saying your ears, uh, my ears have been excavated. In other words, my ear is open to God's call and to his will. He says, my whole body is available from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Every part of me has been prepared to serve you. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. Then he, he elaborates or he interprets that psalm. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Although the law required them to be made, they were there for a purpose. They were, they were a temporary uh, way of, of foreshadowing the coming of the one who would take away the sin of the world. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. I hope you understand what that means. You do not have to keep any list of rules and regulations to be approved of God. He loves you just as you are. Oh, he will begin to change your life when you come into contact with him. There's no question about it. As Paul says, the works of the law begin to turn up in our life as we walk by faith and not by sight. You will become a different person, but you see... It's not that you have to repent in order to be forgiven. It's that you are forgiven in order for you to repent and to go on and do something useful with your life. We start out forgiven. He sets aside the first. What? Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, rituals, rigmarole, all the stuff that we have depended on so long to... To cleanse our consciences. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, what will? The son's will, his submission to the father. We've been made holy. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Some of your versions say sanctified. And that scares people. It sounds like some kind of religious sheep dip or something. <clears throat> what it means is that he makes you different. Makes you different. You're no longer conformed to the, your culture, but you, you become more and more like the Lord Jesus. You become counterculture in that sense. And I'm not going to read the rest of the passage. You can read it on your own. He, 
He just reinforces the idea again that that this is a once-for-all thing. He builds on the fact that this sacrifice is made once for all in verse 10, and the priests uh, were always on this kind of uh, religious treadmill going through the motions every day, every year, on and on it went, but our Lord came once for all, and with one sacrifice, verse 14, he made perfect forever those who were being made holy. I was going to elaborate on that idea. It's very interesting. Just think about it. We are not only set apart and made different because of Christ coming into our life, but that process of being made holy is going on. That's what we, we call progressive sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ. And he goes back and quotes Jeremiah 31 again. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. That's what he's doing. He's writing it. He's writing his, his new set of, of laws, the new covenant on our hearts. And he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And then he comes to the cruncher. This is the bottom line of the whole book. From this point on, everything is practical application. He's finished his argument. I want you to listen to this. Where these, what? Our sins, our lawless deeds, all the detours, all the mistakes, all the wrong turns, all the moral lapses, everything about us that's irrevocably ugly and, and repulsive and disgusting and hurtful, where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. If verse 18 is true, then the whole system of Jewish worship collapsed at that point. Actually, it collapsed on Good Friday. And God in his grace, in order to make the point abundantly clear in 70 A.D., brought the Roman legions. They surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and from that day to this, no Jew has been able to offer sacrifice for sin. The uh, writings of the rabbis in the first century are, are full of efforts to try to explain, what do you, what do, you do now that, that you can no longer go to the temple and, and make sacrifice for sin, but the author of Hebrews would, wouldn't have any problem with that. He'd, he'd just say, no, you don't need to, you don't need to. It's all done. It's all taken care of. You see, if you think that you need to atone for your sin, then, then you need to look at this verse and believe it. Where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. There's a wonderful story in the Gospels about our Lord crawling around on his knees, gird with a towel, dragging a wash basin with him, washing the, the feet of, of the apostles. He came to Peter and started to wash his feet, and Peter pulled his feet up under his cloak, and, and Jesus said, uh, I'm, I must wash your feet. And uh, Peter said, use that double negative we've talked about, no, no way, he said, not under any circumstances will you ever wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Peter stuck his feet out and said, okay, wash me all over. Started to pull his cloak off, I suppose. And Jesus said, no, no, no. No, no. He who is bathed doesn't need 
to be washed all over. See, what happens is that as we walk through the world, we, we get our feet dirty. We get defiled because we tend to pick up the attitudes of the world. But we've been bathed all over. We don't need to be washed. We're cleansed. And what God has cleansed, we must not call unclean. We must never look at ourselves and say we're unclean. We're forgiven. See, that's the, that's the wonder of our Lord's acceptance. I, I want to close just with a brief quote from Ruth Harms Calkin. God, I may fall flat on my face, she says. I may fail until I feel old and beaten and done in, yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you'll hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all his braggadocia, can't distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless forgiveness and love. Pain can't, disappointment can't, anguish can't, yesterday, today, tomorrow can't, the loss of my dearest love can't, death can't, life can't, riots, war, insanity, unidentity, hunger, neurosis, uh, disease. None of these things, nor all of them put together, can budge the fact that I'm dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever uh, free. Through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Will you stand with me, please? Would you pray in your own hearts? Just a prayer of praise and thanksgiving for our Lord who made his body available to us. And then will you thank him for the forgiveness that has been freely given? Just tell him, thank you, Lord, for dying for my sin. Think of that specific sin that has haunted you, that issue in your life that repeatedly defeats you. Thank him that, that even that sin is forgiven. And that even though the potential is there to repeat that sin... His forgiveness is still good. Ask him to change you, but thank him for forgiving you. And if you've been calling yourself unclean, would you please ask God to forgive you for that and begin to see yourself as God sees you as someone who's clean all over? Thank him for taking away your guilt. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this reminder again of your, your obedience, your willingness to put your life on the line for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.